Case file number 5.04. Logging the final frontier. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. He, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. Oh, and, and the other one. The other one. Y Ymir. No, he's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Logging the final frontier. These are the voyages of the modern enterprise. It's five-year retention policy to explore strange new era messages, to seek out new data sources, to boldly analyze what has never been analyzed before. Bravo. So I was going through some of the some of the previous episodes because the worst thing to do with a podcast is forget things that you've already covered. Mm -hmm. And I ran across the logging episode you had in season two, mm -hmm. Gorilla Logging, where we talked, you talked a lot about the elk stack you use, Gray Log. We talked a yeah. lot about logging in general. And I there was a few things that I thought we didn't hit on and a few things that I wanted to kind of expand on from there. Because as you know, logging is an enormously deep subject and yeah, yeah, many, many millions of dollars have been made on it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start a little bit with the theory and the nomenclature that I use when I'm talking about. First, we have logs. And to me, a log is a specific, an atomic message that is serialized and timely. Right. It doesn't get any more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And then an event is a log that got escalated to analysis. Okay, yeah. So there is a difference between a log and an event. An event is something that you looked at. Mm -hmm. An alert is an event which requires you to act. They trigger you to do something. Not all events are alerts, but all alerts are events. Not all logs are events, but all events are logs. Mm -hmm. An incident is what you do when you have an alert. And that's going to consist of more than one can very and very likely does consist of more than one log. It's going to be mm. the alerting event and then everything that you correlate around that. Right, right, yeah. Which brings us to I always like to separate alerts versus forensic log. Mm -hmm. An alert is going to be anything in that event alert tier, anything that can trigger you to do something. Right, right, right. If it's never gonna, then it doesn't reach that standard. Right. And then it's in the log. It's at the log level, and logs, from a security perspective, need to be forensically useful. If you can come up with a reason that you might need it in an investigation, then it's a forensically useful log. If you can't, then you don't. Mm -hmm. No, that'll make sense. Like if you set up an alert to go off if there's like 500 failed logins in like yeah. a minute, 
Yeah, and 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 we're going to get to correlation, but yes, that mm. uh, that is one way where an alert can happen that isn't a single mm-hmm. event, mm-hmm. right? A throttle or a correlation like that. And then there's operational logs versus security logs. Mm. So a security log is something that basically is in and of itself an event or an alert. Yeah. And then an operational log is basically everything else. All the other telemetry, forensically useful stuff, administratively useful stuff is on the operational side. Right, right. Now, this means that your standard firewall allow block log is generally not, in my mind, a security log. It's an operational. Because unless you have a rule that would specifically qualify as an event, traffic in this case should never happen. Right, right, right. Like somebody trying to go to an RDP port on your very important Linux server. Mm-hmm. That might be an alerting event, but that's an uncommon setup in my mind. So how would, how would you classify like auth logs of just like, hey, user logged in? You see that as operational? To me, those are operational logs because mm-hmm. security logs to me are generally security services and devices that can give me security specific events. Things like I detected an attack. Mm, okay. Or I detected a suspicious file or a file that's not supposed to be on this network. If you're running like really hardcore executable signing policy or something like that. Okay. Okay. I separate that because security logs generally are sparse enough where if you've got a decently tuned source, they're all events. Mm-hmm. And everything else to take an operational log and turn it into event usually is some kind of correlation. And that to me is important for the way that you handle those data sources. Mm-hmm. Right. And some of this is opinion. And like I said, this is the way that I kind of approach it. But separating those two things out is important to me because I generally attack the security logs first and trying to get those in front of the analysts and as cleanly as possible, like both parsed correctly with re- the right references to like the vendor's library of what a signature means mm-hmm. right. and tuned down because mm-hmm. that's what I want analysts to focus on first and foremost. There's a lot of threat hunting stuff and that's great. It's really important. But if you can't handle what your security stuff is telling you is probably bad, <laughs> then you're probably wasting your time doing threat hunting. Yeah, Threat hunting is what you do once you have the no, no, no. The systems I trust are already telling me something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And really, you could really drive down that number to a very handleable number in my experience, a, um, kind of regardless of the size of the enterprise. I've, right. I've never been in a place where I couldn't get that number into a very manageable place. Mm-hmm. And the last thing from the theory perspective, we talk about analyst fatigue. So the amount of time that an analyst spends working on stuff, going through huge pages of the same stuff over and over and over again that's not actionable will cause an analyst to miss things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Making an analyst use multiple tools. The more tools, the more they're going to miss things. The more, the less proficiency they're going to have in some or even all of those tools. Right, yeah. My experience is that especially when you're using what I call native console, you're going to each systems console instead of aggregating it into one place, you get people that end up dwelling on the things that they know the best or they get the best results. Okay. This is still a problem when you have a SIM, you still have people kind of going to the place that they know the best. Mm -hmm. 
but it's not as bad. Native consoles, you don't see, if you just go to the one native console, the antivirus thing that you're using. And it's been, you understand the output, you understand the interface, and it's been, you've been making enough events where, where the lead analyst or the SOC manager is happy with you. You may never look at another console. Why would you? Right, yeah. And I see that enough where, where my personal experience, along with kind of the theory of everybody that I've shared with over years and years is they used to use the term single point pane of glass. And that's a bit of a misnomer because that assumes that you only have one dashboard that you're ever looking at. And that's not mm-hmm. really true, but one tool that you get really good at, like my experience and everybody that I've talked to is kind of on the same page as that. The fact that there isn't very much dissent on this subject is a bit telling considering how contentious <laughs> we are in this, in this, yeah, in this yeah. part of the world. So in our episode, you talked a lot about syslog and syslog is super important, we, and, but we talked mostly about UDP syslog. And UDP syslog, as you mentioned in the gorilla logging episode, has a limitation of packet size mm-hmm. and it's unreliable delivery, which is lower weight on the network but that was a more important thing in the past than it is right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So syslog does have the ability to do TCP delivery. It's actually pretty robust at this point, but not mm-hmm. a ton of people realize it to implement it. Yeah, I didn't, and you might be like moving towards this portion of it. Um, I did not ever use uh, TCP syslog until I started uh, doing encrypted Logs. Yes, I was. I was going to mention that that mm. was in the, the the third plus of the of TCP syslog is that you okay. can use TLS, mm. and that doesn't just mean that satisfies requirements from a oh your log delivery needs to be encrypted and there were new government recommendations from NIST to say that you should yeah yeah so that's why you and I have dealt with it pretty recently but also that means if you are doing TLS encryption you can if it becomes necessary, deliver it over unsecured networks. Yes. Yeah. Which adds some flexibility that you didn't have before when you were using plain syslog. Yeah, exactly. That's my first phase of the rollout was um, all outside networks uh, sending encrypted logs into our internal network. Mm-hmm. And the next phase, once I actually have time and enough coffee, is to just roll out encrypted within the network as well. I mean, it's like every other TLS implementation. We've talked ad nauseum about some of the stuff. You got to get the certs up and running and you have to deal with all of that, but it's the same problem you've already dealt with probably for all of your consoles and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess to, to touch on that, our syslog, super easy. Um, once you've rolled the certs, you can configure it right in our syslog. Mm-hmm. Good to go. Uh, Windows, for me, I use NXLog, same thing. Throw the certs on there yeah. uh, and it's good to go. I was going to mention NXLog that it actually mm-hmm. can be used in Linux or Windows and it can do syslog via TLS. So you can actually have a standard solution for delivery, regardless of whether or not you're running Windows or Linux without being tied to a particular vendor because NXLog, the community edition is forever free. Yep, exactly. And that was a reaction to the solution that pretty much everybody used for, especially for Windows logging for a very long time was a tool called Snare, which is still available commercially, but was free for a very long time. I I remember hearing of snare I, i've never actually used it but i do remember i think when i started uh, people talking about it i've used snare at a few different places and it, it wasn't a super polished thing but it worked really well like once mm-hmm. you had it rolling it, like it had a comp file once you got that kind of tuned the way you wanted it worked pretty well 
I used it in a, a few different places and it did solve the problem. But when they went full commercial, it left a lot of people kind of stranded because they really hadn't budgeted to pay that license fee. A little right. a lot of bad taste in people's mouth too. I could tell you from personal uh, experience, but NX log its commitment to being forever free was probably in reaction to that. Mm-hmm. But TCP and the reason why I started using TCP syslog for some systems is like we were saying that you're limited to about a K ish, about one kilobyte in a UDP syslog messages, there's no size limitation that's directly associated with TCP syslog. Mm. I realized that I needed to solve this problem because actually the snare thing happened and we were looking for a different alternative. And there was a piece of software that we were checking out was a piece of software called WLS. And they started sending me logs from there. And I was like, this looks a little weird. And I was figuring out that they were truncated because the messages were too big. Oh, really? Okay. And it was kind of funny because like the folks that were putting it in never realized it. The folks that programmed it never realized that when you forward <laughs> Windows logs, they're just too big. Mm, um, yeah. Like, and it just like nobody realized it until me at the at the end of the chain was like, wait, I can't use this because WLS, I think it's Windows Windows logging system or something like that. It okay. might be distributed by one of the national the national labs like Sandia or something. Mm. I don't remember exactly, but um it was a little surprising to me because turning it on to TCP was, I remember having to fight with the guys who were on the implementation side to get that to happen. I don't know if that was because they didn't want to do it or if there was a problem on the software side side to make it happen. Cause I was doing all the firewall rules to make it work. Um, So that's a very important aspect of TCP syslog. Mm -hmm. But then and I don't know how I feel about this because the purist in me hates this idea, but the practical engineer in me sees how useful it is, is what Splunk calls heck, HTTP event collection. Okay. So what they did was they said, all right, we're going to re-implement syslog, but using HTTP. Okay. Yeah. And so they just use a post request with the record that they're hitting in JSON. Okay. So for things like Elk Stacks and Splunk, that's JSON. That's kind of their native parsing format. It's really easy. There's There's been a number of attempts to standardize on syslog formats. Uh, Gelf and Ceph were two of mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And they actually end up being kind of a pain to parse, whereas everything's got a JSON library. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in fact, if you have just a raw JSON log in Splunk, you can pipe it, you can use their, their command line search interface to pipe to XPath and it'll just parse it for you straight into the mm, okay. fields. So like, like it's baked right into the cake. And you've had, you have more experience with, with Graylog and Elk Stacks than, than I do. Mm. But I can tell you that there is a way of receiving heck type forwarding, logging over, over HTTP, in Elk. And the reason for it is AWS, you might've heard of Kinesis Firehose. I think vaguely, yeah. Yeah. So AWS generates metric fuck tons of logs. I think just enormous a a number of logs. It's just, it's crazy. And they're not small logs. Like each individual record is not small. And there's just, there's just so many logs. So they were having problems with systems trying to fetch those logs via API. Mm-hmm. The API handler had to execute a command every time it was doing that. And that broke some stuff. There was 
service limitations and stuff to make sure that people weren't bringing down the service that people, when they were trying to grab their logs, were always running into if they were mm. trying for anything real time rather than downloading the logs and, and slurping them off of flat files. Right, right, right. So they made Kinesis. And what Kinesis does is it takes all of those, all of those individual CloudTrail logs, well, whatever you want to forward, but CloudTrail is one of them. And it sends it through the Kinesis Firehose to an HTTP event collector. And Elk has a Kinesis input plugin, but you can use it for any HTTP-based event logging, basically done to turn a web server into a syslog server. Oh, okay. This has some pluses in some systems. And if it becomes the standard way of operating, it's a good thing to know as like, this is your next level syslog. Mm, right, right, right. Especially since you can't use syslog as an alternative for AWS, and you may be in a very similar position for all the other clouds. I didn't look at the other clouds. I have like my current engagement. I'm just starting to get into Azure logging mm -hmm. and Azure security structures. I'm not quite as far ahead as I want to be on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if this became kind of a standard approach for a lot of things. Um, right. One of the little things that I'm working with my guys, to, my engineering team to do, or one of the engineers on my team, uh, we're trying to get snort events. We're trying to basically replace Barnyard and send snort events directly to our Splunk implementation using Hack. Okay. Um, that way, a lot of the intermediary problems that we've had getting snort events parsed in there, we can use the old IDS tools, or it's not old, but there's an IDS tools toolkit that will parse out the U2 logs into JSON for us. Right, and then right. we post it using HTTP, and then everything's in JSON. We don't have to worry about any of the parsing problems that we had. And in addition, we can do full decoding of the packets and put that in the JSON and not have to worry about it. We're in kind of beta in our system on that right now. Mm -hmm. Like at the time of this recording, probably by the time of this publishing, we'll have been using it for a little while. <laughs> but this has proven to be an easier solution to our problem than just about anything else. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're if if this becomes kind of a standard approach to attack this kind of a problem. Right, yeah. Especially over uh, SaaS stuff over the cloud into your logging system. Hmm, okay. So, I mean, those are generic delivery methods. There's a lot of other de delivery methods that are application specific. I've dealt with things that like did polls directly from a database for an IDS system for mm -hmm. actually a few different IDS systems. It was kind of a normal thing, but like we're converging on, I think this set of tools for getting stuff into our logging solutions. Right. And uh, I think we mentioned it in the last episode and I'm still an advocate of it, of having your collection and your all of your parsing separated, like different applications, not necessarily a separate system, depending on the size of your implementation. Mm -hmm. So you record off everything, flat files, and you have like a buffer in flat files and the ability to chase down things in flat files if you have any problems in the ingest and analysis portion. Yeah. So like I, I think that that is actually a very important part. You lose our log, our syslog, um, and I've used syslog in G. I've used our log a little bit, and they're both very powerful syslog tools, and yeah. either of them will solve your problem for free. Well, open source free. Yeah, kind of the more the more I'm thinking about it even right now, mm -hmm. I'm kind of re-engineering stuff in my head because, you know, everyone or most likely everyone has to meet certain audit requirements of, mm -hmm. you know, store logs for a certain period of time. A lot of tools, I mean, 
I think most of them now come with different retention setups. Like I'm playing with Grafana Loki right now, which has compactor um, and different ways of doing retention and everything. Mm-hmm. But they tend to be kind of like funky and screwy sometimes in doing the archiving, doing all that stuff, going back, opening up the archive to pull out the logs. And like what you're saying here of doing like the flat file. Mm-hmm. I think it's much easier to just dump all of your logs into, you know, flat file server. They sit there. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's your audit requirement right there if you ever need to go back. And then you have the week's worth of logs um, roll over on your, your main system over and over again. Yeah, your, your hot logs. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's all files, so you can use... I like, and maybe I'm a little bit old school or fossilized, but I really like how flexible or... I've gotten quite a lot of mileage out of the Linux log rotate command. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're if the cool kids are using anything different right now, but man, I have gotten enough mileage out of that. It's had enough flexibility for me to never think about re-engineering it, which is kind of a big thing for me because I try <laughs> to re-engineer everything. So uh, there's a way of mounting S3 volumes, for instance, uh, in mm. Linux, and you could have log rotate just move things over instead of deleting them into that S3 bucket. And Bob's your uncle as as one way of like long term retention. Like you're talking about using that solution to kind of its best effect, um, and uh, it really does help you with your with your long term retention stuff by just it's flat files, and I offloaded it to wherever we've decided to have our our long term storage, and you have it logged that it did it, and you keep a correlation rule that 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 yells if it didn't. Yeah, yeah. Because the more I'm thinking of it now, it's. Like how, how often have I gone back and been like, ah, oh, I want to like bring up on my dashboard logs from like six months ago um, and see what it looks like. Like that, that's never the thing. It's it's the real time logs. I care about what's going on, you know, the past couple of days so I can, yeah, like correlate it and be like, okay, like today something's mm-hmm. going on. My dashboard kind of spiking all over the place compared to like two or three days ago. I'm never like, oh, my dashboard's kind of like spiking compared to like seven months ago or like this right. time last year or two years ago. Like that, that's never a thing that I correlate together. A lot of our stuff we aim at about 90 days online mm-hmm. straight in our Splunk in the, my current engagement. Right, yeah. Some stuff is longer. There's other stuff. There, I mean, it's a complicated solution, but mm-hmm. 90 days is useful for us for a couple of reasons. Uh, let's us get good trend lines for some of the regression machine learning stuff that we're just getting into. And we'll talk about that at the very end of this episode, just Mm -hmm. the very basics of it, because we're very immature in that. But I think that that's going to be a lot of fun as I, as I eke out time to play with it. Right. Uh, And I really like being able to say, instead of what happened two days ago, what happened last week at this time, Mm -hmm. but probably the driving reason for that is part of our procedures is whenever we get new indicators from one of our, from one of our sources is to do a backwards look. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, that's specific data sources, usually DNS, maybe firewall, maybe web filter kind of stuff. Right. Right. But those data sources specifically having them online and hot on our analysis system is way better than going through and doing them through flat files. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Especially compressed flat files. Not to say that you shouldn't have the ability to do that. And again, that's an was one of the things I wanted to talk just a little bit about technique about at the uh, towards the end of this episode, mm-hmm. uh, because right. we've absolutely had requests to look for things going back a year or more. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go too much into the things that were that was related to, but 
we've gotten those requests, but you can focus that. You can say, these are the files I care about. Right, right, yeah. And you could bring those into a more online system. And well, in fact, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about, about, about text methods right now, mm-hmm. since, since it came up. So all the normal text compression methods that you're gonna have, that you're gonna probably use are gonna be BZ or GZ, BZ2 or XZ. XZ is kind of the new one. GZ is fast and lightweight and very compatible with everything, but its compression is the lowest of the three. Depending on your data, I've never seen it go below like five to one for logs, usually closer to 10, but it can go as high as like 20 to one. Mm, Right. But 20 to one is pretty rare. Uh, I actually don't know the ratios of BZ and GZ um, off the top of my head because I haven't worked with them for nearly as long, Uh, (laughs) but all three of them, you can do... Uh, a g unzip gunzip dash c in the file and it'll output to standard out and you can just pipe it into into whatever tool you're using yep yep whatever you've made a script if you're using awk if you're using perl all of them basically have the same thing a lot of times they'll have like uh gcat bcat xcat or x it's bzcat xzcat mm-hmm. um in fact in some of the, I've had, I've ended up writing a couple of tools for this, and I have a standard, uh, a standard function that says what's the suffix of the file and picks the right one and puts nice. it into the file handle that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that pipes it into the rest of my Perl script. Um, <laughs> yeah, because like, I don't want to have to think about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I thought about it once, and I wrote some code, and now yeah. I don't have to think about it anymore. It saves a little bit of that brain space. Yes. So I think it's really important. That like this is one of those reasons to know a little bit of awk or a little bit of Perl. Mm. Because using awk or Perl to cut things up by field in those text logs, and then analyzing data by the field you're looking at can have a significant impact on the performance of what you're doing. Do you know how grep works? In terms of like the underlying or just how to use grep? Uh, underlying. <laughs> uh, and how, how grep actually does its pattern map. Uh, no, actually. Okay, so fixed string pattern matching. Mm-hmm. What it does is it takes your string, let's say it's five characters, grabs the first five characters, says, okay, does it match? It doesn't match. All right, well, is the first character in my match pattern in the pattern in the string that I grabbed? Okay. If yes, then I grab from there to then the next four characters. And then I do the match thing again. Oh, okay, I see. So it's kind of like frog hopping. Yes, and if not, I just grab the next five. Right, right, yeah but it's going through and it's doing a bunch of grabs. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a fixed string match against a specific field, let's say it's comma delimited. What it's going to do, first, Auk and Perl are going to go, all right, I'm just looking for commas. Yeah, yeah. Is it a comma? Is it a comma? Is it a comma? Is it a comma? That's a very fast operation, actually. Yeah. And then it cuts things up into those specific fields. And then you have a memory chunk where it says, I want to know this string matches this string. And that's very fast. So my personal experience is that just piping into a Perl one-liner, grep versus Perl doing a field-specific search is about doubly fast over straight grep. Mm, okay. And using awk or using Perl, one of the other like performance things, and this ends up mattering when you have to go through hundreds of files, gigabytes and gigabytes of compressed data is that writing everything in Perl or awk, you're invoking one thing. Mm-hmm. If you make a shell script out of it 
every time it has to invoke those things, it's got to make a thread for each command because each command is a separate executable. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't matter when you're doing something quick, but it starts to really matter when you're analyzing gigabytes and gigabytes of compressed data. Right, right, right. And then the last trick, and there's ways of going about this. I tend to use the Perl uh, uh, thread queue module, but I understand Perl is a dead language. I might as well be talking in <laughs> Sanskrit, but this is how I do it, and I'm old. <laughs> I mean, I have systems still running Fortran, so nothing's dead. Yeah, all right. I at least get some sympathy from you because you have people that are using things that were programmed 20 years ago and refuse to do anything else than than those things. Yeah, I mean, in fact, there there's a wiki that they wanted me to to build out called Foss Wiki that uses Perl as the backend. And when I started running it and I had all the Perl stuff, I was like, damn it. I suggest you figure out how to migrate that to something a bit more modern because CGI bin is, as much as I really appreciate Perl and everything it's done for me, CGI bin is is maybe deserves to go quietly into that good night. <laughs> yep, yep. And like it's a slight quick tangent. This this is one of the main issues I have anytime I'm designing a new missions ground system and, and infrastructure and all that stuff is they all come from previous mission where they're like, well, this tool worked for us when we ran this mission 10 years ago. So we just want to port it over because we have all of our like custom documents and custom wiki templates and all this stuff. And like so just build us this tool. And one of the one of said tools was track, which I remember track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's it's an old tool. It's not updated. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, the new version of track does not work with um, Python 3.7 in conjunction with SVN. So you kind of have to like figure out like, okay, uh, if I want SVN to work with track, now I have to use older track or kind of like bolt in versions of Python and everything. And I went, nope, we're using Redmine. <laughs> like, oh my God. That sounds horrendous. Yep. I feel like it's pulling teeth sometimes to get people to think about replacing their stuff after five or seven years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're supposed to do refreshes every X amount of years, but more often than not, that's a hardware refresh, not a software refresh. Yeah. Well, and actually, that's a thing that I'm fighting with right now. To Like, I'm trying to convince my current customer as they're kind of changing some stuff up for like migrating things to their, the best version of themselves in the cloud that, right. you know, maybe when we run into the hard ones, we give some real thought to putting real funding to refactoring those, th- those systems, because mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're doubling down on your tech, on your technical debt. Right. But I mean, it's a fight. It's a non-trivial fight. And the bigger the system or the more people entrenched, the harder it is. And you don't want to be stuck in the problem that academia has where you only advance when the guy who wouldn't let you move forward dies. Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's um, I'm Irish, so I, uh, I'm very stubborn. <laughs> so it's a constant just like, nope, we're doing it this way because I'm the one building this shit. So uh, suck it up. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm not building the other one. So if you want it, you got to build it yourself. But to get back, so this, what I call this is lo-fi MapReduce. Mm-hmm. So the way MapReduce works, and you usually don't have to understand this for a lot of the systems that we, that we do, because it does it under the hood. What MapReduce does is it takes a bunch of different data chunks that are completely separate from one, from one another, as in like you separate them, either they're in a big file or more easily in this case, they're just different files because these are in computational terms, non-blocking threads, as in they don't need to communicate with one another. It just 
put the file and the job in a thread and put it on a CPU and run as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. This is basically the map side. The map side says, I'm taking a bunch of different pieces of data and running the same search on them. Right, right, yeah. And then the reduce side takes the end result of all of that map stuff. And maybe it was looking for five things and you have the reduce side that's going through those results and picking out just the one thing it's supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times when you're looking for like a specific, uh, specific string kind of thing, as an obvious example in the DoD world, if somebody had a classified code name or a part number, which uh, can be secret, uh, depending on what it's for, mm -hmm. um, you would be searching for a very specific string. In the more civilian world, if you're looking for a specific like uh, social security number or credit card number, right, right. You don't ever need to do the reduce side, but you may very well need to do the map side, depending on how, on if it's one file you're aiming at or a mm. hundred or a right. thousand. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I leave the implementation of how one might go about that as an exercise for the listener, <laughs> but it can be very helpful to implement lo-fi map, uh, map reduce um, mm -hmm. to basically figure out how to get all of your analysis jobs on different CPUs, maybe even different systems and do things in parallel rather than in serial, especially mm. in today's cloud world, you can get away with that. And then you have to balance that against how often am I doing this? And is it worth right. the engineering time to make it go real fast? But sometimes you have a, we need an answer in a week. And if you do it by the systems that you have on hand, it will take a month kind of problem. Right, yeah. <laughs> and in which case it's like, well, you're going to get a bill, but we could totally do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the thing that I was actually going to talk about next is tuning. Mm -hmm. A lot of orgs are bad at this. I've rarely gotten on the ground in a new place and then been well-tuned. Like we are talking about, this is a really important aspect to analyst fatigue. It's not just the size of the stuff. It's not just how messy it looks. Analyst fatigue. If the ratio of actionable events to events on the screen is a thousand to one, mm -hmm. you're going to miss some. You may miss a lot. And these things propagate. People don't feel like they're learning. People don't feel like they're doing anything interesting. And you'll lose personnel. You'll lose some of your best personnel. They'll go to you know, where it's more interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not going to sit in front of a console for eight, nine hours a day just watching a stream of crap that, like, I could care less of and nothing, like, yeah, it's not tuned. So it's like thousands of messages over and over and over again. Right. And I try very hard to get my analysts involved in the tuning. That has had varying degrees of success. <laughs> Like I want to be actually at the spot, me as, as, a, as, you know, the subject matter expert engineer who does a lot of different things. I can't just focus on what the SOC's doing. Mm -hmm. I want them to be in a position where the level one, maybe level two analysts are coming up with things that they're just seeing a lot. And level two, maybe level three analysts are saying, yeah, what you found, I agree with your analysis. I think that the filtering should go something like this, mm. maybe your suggestion was good, maybe experience and some better analysis will say, no, you know what, you identified something good, but maybe we should approach the tuning of it a little bit differently. Right, right. But I want that like internal to the SOC and I've never quite gotten there. I've gotten, there've gotten to be a couple of like tier three analysts that I can trust, but I really, I, 
I wish I had better technique. Maybe by the time, you know, the beard goes from kind of gray to all gray. (laughs) Okay. So I tend to approach when I see a system that's just gobs of unactionable events is from highest frequency down. Mm -hmm. And I go by event type and then I go by the host that it's coming from. And I start just, you know, if I can look at and address the top 10 of both of those lists every day, it doesn't take that many days for me to get to a spot to get the volume down, not get down to half or maybe even 10% or less of the initial volume, depending on what it was. Usually the 10% is when I got lucky and there's like one or two events that are just screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it looks good when you say I knocked our event volume down by a factor of 10. But like, that's the place to to start to really get things weeded down. Mm -hmm. So I classify the possible kinds of things to be tuned in a couple of different ways. Some of them are benign. And if they're benign, they're off my screen. They aren't considered events. They're just logs. And if they're not logs, like they're not forensically useful, they're not, and they're definitely not events if they're benign. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then maybe I, you know, tune them out of my entire logging analysis system. Mm-hmm. And then there's policy violations, non-critical. I usually want them off my screen, but I those are a little bit more annoying because you have to because um, a lot of times you have to basically force the powers that be to make a call mm-hmm. to say you said you wanted us to care about this, and we can't care about this many of these things. Maybe you want to rethink it. Maybe we want to change how we approach this, but I can't action on these things if there are too many of them. Yeah, exactly. The choice is we're going to go after all of these and maybe make that a project, or we don't actually care about this as much as we thought, or, well, I guess there's, there's a third option, which is instead of making it a thing that pokes us, if it happens, we just stop it from happening. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have non-actionable events. Some things are not necessarily benign, but they're not actionable. Actually, a really good case of this, I mean, this is less of a security event, more of an operational event, but like Active Directory, in Active Directory Windows world, you can get in a situation where you get a huge number of Kerberos failures. They're usually uh, event 4768 status code like OX7, Mm. if I remember right. Okay. I've investigated the system. There's nothing to do about it. But the software that it's running is just creating a lot of these Kerberos failures before it falls back to doing SMB. I, mean, I was kind of wondering when we were going to get to Windows logs. like Because like I was just, um, I've been troubleshooting smart cards with Windows. Mm-hmm. And holy crap, like taking the time when I go to try to log in with a smart card through RDP and it fails. Mm-hmm. And then I log in successfully to go look at the log because I'm, I'm working in like, you know, single VM here. I can have multiple consoles open and whatnot. Yeah. The amount of logs that get generated between the failure and the success, and I'm like, I don't need 150 logs like dedicated to the fact that you've logged in successfully. Yeah. Windows is completely nuts about this, and mm-hmm. this is part of my increasing annoyance with Active Directory. Honestly, the more we talk about any Active Directory security stuff, the more I am annoyed at what we continue to have to live with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I mean, it is a good point that you have that like there's a lot of non-actionable events there. Yeah, yeah. Things that if they're bubbling up to the event level and they're non-actionable, I need them off of my screen because this is mm. again analyst fatigue. You have false positives. 
Mm-hmm. I've run into those occasionally before. Sometimes they're bad SIGs. Sometimes they're just weirdness. I've had antivirus related stuff uh, or web filter related stuff where they have a bad indicator. Mm-hmm. That's correction in a lot of cases. Sometimes that's like one that I ran into where it was telling me that there was a novel buffer overflow that was happening. Okay. I, I don't remember exactly what caused it, but we were getting it periodically. And there's no novel in my network. The CVE was 15 years old. I was like, <laughs> let's just turn off the SIG. I don't care. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, um, I think I was telling you about this offline, the C++ uh, redistributable uh, pack that comes with Windows. Yeah. Um, there's multiple iterations of it. Uh, they don't necessarily cancel each other out. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, just random software install comes with these usually. And so you might be running, like, Notepad++. It's fully up to date, but it's using a dis- redistributable pack from, like, 2008 release. Yeah. Well, one of those releases has, um, I think, uh, privilege escalation uh, CP associated to it. One of our tools that we use was flagging my system for this, um, mm-hmm. just saying, like, hey, you, you got, this, like, you have, and it only looked at this, do you have this redistributable pack? Yeah. Um, I dove down into it, spent like three hours looking into like, you know, like what is this? The DLLs associated to it, verified I do not have the DLLs and ran an entire scan from Nessus against all these systems and showed that Nessus isn't flagged for this. I don't know where it is right now, but like it, it's still a fight because, you know, it's yeah. just it's false positive, but they won't let it go because their one system flagged us. And well, to me, that's that is a problem with the whole governance structure. Because like mm-hmm. the point is that we investigate these things. I realize that you want a blank screen, but sometimes you don't get to what you want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's another, actually, um, going back to the Windows thing, the, the proliferation of, of events that's related to that one login is a pretty decent example of what I call a sympathetic event. Mm. So one thing happened, but also a bunch of other things that are all the same thing happened. There's just a bunch of events that are all around one thing happened. And you okay. want to get one, if those are, if that's an alerting event, if that's an event mm-hmm. that people need to look at, you only want one of them on the screen. You don't want all 12. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then there's constant and malicious. Mm-hmm. If you're seeing that, then remediate, like remediation actions are going to be a little bit more severe. And in yeah. fact, the first one you do is going to be, or the first one you want to go to is in my methods of addressing it section, which we've talked a little bit about, but I'm going to go through it explicitly, um, is preventative. Mm-hmm. You want to put a preventative measure in place. Now, sometimes that's, hey, I, I have an IPS and I'm going to put a block in. But um, a lot of IPS systems, and I'm most familiar with Palo Alto recently, uh, has a mechanism called um, IP block, which is what I like to call for the analysts, the penalty box. Um, the way that it works in Palo Alto is if you trigger any signature with IP block on it, whatever time frame you have it specified, it'll reject all traffic from Mm. that source until the time expires. Right, right, right. I've seen like botnets where some of the stuff will alert and I'll get IPS events and some of the stuff won't or will get an allow rule. Mm, Okay. And the vendor will make will default send out rules as allow when they're not as confident in the signature, mm. because IPS vendors are very sensitive to feedback of any kind of operational impact. 
Right. Yeah. So they tend to be relatively conservative. And as a side lesson to that, that probably means that if you, you are responsible for doing IPS maintenance, that it would behoove you to regularly go over new update signatures and escalate them from like alert to block more often mm. than you probably do for most values of people. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost all of us could stand to be a little bit more aggressive about those things. Right. Yeah. Another thing is throttling. And throttling can go a couple of different ways. Snort, you can tell it, hey, I only want an alert from this SIG from this source every five minutes, every 10 minutes. Okay, okay. Another throttling method, kind of the other side of this, a DNS server, for instance, uh, one of the security measures you can put in there is you can throttle the number of requests that you get. Mm -hmm. So if you're seeing like a large volume possible denial of service to your DNS server, you can, one of the things you can do is throttle the number of requests you're responding to. Mm, okay. And then you can maybe tune that down because you have created a preventative measure to prevent you from taking a lot of impact from that. Yeah, yeah. For some of these non-actionable policy violation stuff, uh, one of the things you can do is you can reduce the severity. And sometimes that will remove it from what you're viewing or at least make it easier to filter out when you're saying, all right, we have to address highs and criticals and you take the thing that was coming in as a high and bring it in, in as a low. Right, right. So people could still action on it, but not as their top priority. Hmm. And then from severity reduction, you can do a severity reduction and correlation. You can say, yeah, it's a low or maybe even informational. But if I see five of them, if I see 10 of them from the same source, then escalate it. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. Which is a little bit of a combination of throttle and, and severity reduction, but hmm. like, that is sometimes a worthwhile way of going about it. In fact, a lot of places will have a failed login threshold that's similar to that. Yeah. And then there's filtering it from, you can filter from detection. So you say, this source is always tripping this signature. I don't want to turn off the signature. I can't correct the signature, but I can turn it off for this specific case. Mm -hmm. Right. And I ended up with some of those things I had a clustering setup for some application that was regularly tripping uh, the IPS for a denial of service thing. I don't remember mm. the exact signature, but like that was one of those instances where just filtering that out, those two sources out and not disabling the signature at all, reduced the event volume by like a factor of 10 or more. Mm -hmm. Right. Sometimes there's a signature correction thing you need to do. In fact, a good example, when we were talking to the peer-to-peer -peer episode, I mentioned that there was, a, at the time, a snort signature that was looking for get on the port for Nutella. Oh, yep. yep. But it was only looking for get. And if you had enough volume and you would eventually have somebody electing that high port for a get to your web server, mm -hmm. and it was tripping it on, you know, it was a false positive. Right. Yeah, yeah. So... What I did at that time, and now the current signature reflects this, although I didn't submit the correction because I'm a bad person. Um, <laughs> instead of just saying get, it says get Nutella. Mm. Uh, and then even then you don't have to bind it on the, on the port anymore because it's a much better signature. Right, yeah. If you don't want to. I mean, it's, it's, it'll run better if you restrain it to, constrain it to a port. But that was, that's correcting the signature to deal with your false positive problem. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes when we talked about one of these a little, a little bit earlier was signature removal. Now, filter from detection, signature correction, signature uh, removal are instances where 
you want to filter out the events that you've identified as not helpful to you right as close to where they're being detected as possible mm. especially for high volume stuff but generally speaking your sim whatever it is what your elk stack splunk or regular sim throwing logs at it is kind of expensive mm-hmm. right computational yeah and what that means is that's just either your capacity for the hardware given hardware that you have or the amount of hardware that you have to buy to deal with the log volume you have goes up mm-hmm. right right Expensive is in the resources that you have. It's not necessarily money, but it can be in this cloud in this cloud world. Yeah, you can just buy more, and you have to be sensitive to that because buying more in the cloud world can it's real expensive, real fast. Yeah. So, like, if it goes and it gets dropped by your ingester, whatever your ingester is, if it's Logstash, if it's a Splunk heavy forwarder or whatever, it's that CPU you're using at a place. That it is that the CPU is essentially most precious, mm-hmm. which is why you focus on filtering it as close to detection as possible. Right, right. But like, if those events are forensically useful, make sure that they make it into at least the log retention side of things. But mm-hmm. you have to make that judgment call. You have to decide what's important. Yeah, yeah. So now that I've I've had a chance to be on my tuning soapbox, <laughs> <laughs> talk a little bit about. Aggregation, correlation, and machine learning. One of the really powerful things that's, I don't think people explicitly realize about SIM systems is the ability to aggregate. I'm going to give an example of like how I used to look at IDS signatures. I used to have either a, an aggregation of by signature, by source, or by sensor, or by signature, sensor, distinct count, total count. Mm-hmm. And that way I knew where it was happening because I knew which sensors were where I knew what the SIGs were. And right. I could very quickly, that got my, got everything onto a page for at least, you know, specific boundaries and stuff. And right, let right. me drill in and look at, at, at specific stuff. But if you've used Excel enough to use pivot tables, it's the same kind of thing. It's taking the same value and getting an aggregated count. And you don't have to do it on just one value. Mm-hmm. You don't have to just do it on signature. You can decide to do it on multiple things. Kibana will let you do this. Splunk will let you do this very easily. Right, right. The stats command in Splunk, I found extremely powerful for that. Like I've done it in Kibana and Kibana works great for doing those things. I find personally for me, maybe this is me spending too much time on a command line. I could kind of stream of consciousness type out the stats command where I had to think a lot more about it in Kibana. And then, and that's just me in the use case for me. Right, yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned that Greylog has has a, well, I know that Elastic has its own search language, which I don't have very much experience with. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've used that very much in Greylog. Not really. Greylog more or less extrapolates uh, away uh, the Elk stack. Like I've, I've built mm-hmm. an Elk stack, like, like an actual Elk stack. Mm-hmm. And then Greylog kind of, it depends on how you're installing, because Greylog has an appliance they can just give you. Yeah, everything's there. Uh, or you can install Greylog on top of Elasticsearch um, and uh, MongoDB um, mm-hmm. as, as your backend and performs the you know Kibana functionality and whatnot. But you, you don't really like do much with it, Greylog itself. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. You know, there, there's been a few um, different queries that I've done against uh, just pure Elasticsearch. Like, mm-hmm. And primarily when the service isn't running or I need to get like different version um, readouts and stuff like that. 
so you have like specific views and dashboards that where you're aggregating like total number of highs, mediums, and lows on a on a specific system or stuff like or or anything like that in how you manage things. In terms of like uh, the the logs, mm-hmm. it kind of falls to more the sysadmins um, nowadays. Mm-hmm. Like I. I build the tool um, because we have multiple missions running. Um, I will break up those missions into certain streams in Greylog because mm-hmm. obviously I don't want an admin from one mission being able to see the logs from a bunch of other stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know I just give them full permission. Like, well, here's your stream. You can build your dashboard based on like whatever you want. In the past, most of my um, my dashboards were set up of like you know like okay like this service failed x amount of times in like this span of window like you know now alert me about that because that's something mm-hmm. i care about saying well i mean that was the reason why i brought up aggregation is is mm-hmm. one of the ways one of kind of the easiest way of making a correlation rule is aggregation and a threshold yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I mean that's exactly an example of, of what i was driving at yeah, um, yeah, yeah. in terms of correlation rules now the other kind of correlation rule you generally see is what's called a what I think of as a multi-trigger that might be some vendor's name for it. It might be the standard name for it. I don't know, but it's like this happened and then this happened. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's like, Oh, I saw an IDS event and then a host IPS or a windows event that go together. Yeah. Yeah. And you could kind of like, um, you can do that, like a step up sort of thing. Like in, at least in gray log, I've done that where it's like, okay, if this hits, now, like it gets thrown into this this other stream or this other alerting function, and then if I see something else, you know, bring it to my attention. Yeah, and there's a lot of functionality there, and I'll I will say personally, I've rarely been in a place that relied on very much of that. Mm-hmm. That usually the security event is high confidence enough, especially if you design things so that you have preventative controls to like constrain things where right, right. that event becomes an alert and you're investigating anyway yeah, like it yeah, doesn't yeah. save you any time yep i mean if it happened and the thing didn't fire off you're still investigating so mm-hmm. and maybe i'm wrong i mean i've been in a bunch of places but i haven't been everywhere and maybe somebody's the, the divine guru of the of the multi-trigger but i have found that it's not worth putting a ton of time into trying to figure out multi-triggers unless like that's the solution that is obvious to your problem yeah, yeah. Because they're complicated, they're hard to tune. In a lot of cases, I've definitely been very worried at, that, that I didn't put it in quite right, that I didn't have everything exactly right. And it's very hard to like test. Mm-hmm. So aggregation threshold tends to be the way that I write correlation rules, but the multi-stage ones totally exist. Like you said, you've used them before. Yeah. So nowadays, a lot of the tools that we have give us the ability to use machine learning. And which is essentially the word for a lot of computerized methods for making judgment calls. Right. Yeah. Uh, the the buzzword used to be fuzzy logic. Um, <laughs> are the three main ways to really that are kind of the easy to access way uh, things to deal with are classification, clustering, and regression. And I'm going to go over very briefly. I've done like the MIT Open Courseware on some on this stuff and played around with it in Splunk. So I'm by far far from an authority, but I've learned enough to talk about this. So classification lets you take like a spreadsheet of behaviors. You have a thing that it was for, you have a classification of what it is, and then you have a bunch of numbers around, around it. Ideally, or at least to aim at, it would be numbers from zero to one in all cases. Mm -hmm. 
you could do other things than that, but I, I, I recommend that being the place that you start because what'll happen is you massively overweight one thing over another. Right, right, right. But you can do things like ratio of successes to failures, ratios of, for my cloud logging, I, I separate logs that write from logs that read. Okay, yeah. I'll have like a ratio of that as one of my numbers. I'll have a ratio of successes to failures for one of those numbers. I will have the ratio of the number of events per service that they accessed. And each service has a different column. Hmm. And then the classification is based on what in, on one of the tags in our in our tagging thing. So I so I take the role that or the user that that I'm looking at, I go and I look at their tags and I grab the tag that I'm focusing on. That's that's the bucket they're in. Right, right. And then I have Splunk, because I'm using Splunk, calculate all of those columns and I build my spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I run the most common, at least best of my understanding, the most common way of, of, of attacking this is, is an algorithm called uh, K nearest neighbor, which basically looks for things that are, that groups classify, classifies things that are similar. So you start with a list of say half of your stuff. Okay. And you, you create that classification database and you, you run the K nearest neighbor and it figures out here are rules I can use to identify the class. Mm. And that's basically the end result of all of the different systems. How do I identify things of this class? Right, right. And then you take those rules, you run against the other half of your data that wasn't in your data set. Okay. And you ask, hey, can you tell me, can you get it right? Because like I can pull the same tag information, mm-hmm. but like, did you get it right? Because yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if you can get it right, then what I can do is I can say, every time I see a new thing, if it doesn't fit any of these rules, I need to investigate it right, right, as right. an anomaly. Or I can track other ways of, I have new users of these different types. Right, yeah. So clustering. You can do three-dimensional clustering, but we're going to talk about two-dimensional clustering because that's pretty much all that I've done. So it's basically taking a scatter plot. You need to have two numbers. In some of my cases, I have done successes and failures of Windows authentication. Okay. I also, on this cloud logging stuff, the read actions versus write actions mm-hmm. as my two axes. And then uh, you'll use a thing called k-means. And what that will do is you give it a number of clusters that you want. And it will randomly select that number of points on the graph. Okay. Uh, these are called centroids. And then it will go and look for what's nearest to each randomly selected centroid and move things closer to to its nearest neighbors. So it's actually not very different from the nearest neighbor, the method behind nearest neighbor. Mm-hmm. And sooner or later, those centroids aren't going to move very much. And then it stops looping through. And what you'll usually do with that is do it more than once and kind of find the graph that's kind of best spread out. Okay. And so you'll get this graph of the way that I've got it set up is for all everybody else who's doing Splunk stuff, table, cluster num, x-axis, y-axis. Uh, and then looking at the visualization, what that does is it uses the cluster number as the key mm-hmm. in the legend. So each of those cluster numbers come up comes up as a different color. And then I have the graph of the you know reads versus writes in that example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see what's kind of clustered together, and see if they're doing if if they're relatively the same behavior, relatively the same things. But it's also a kind of a good way of specifically identifying what what the outliers are. Hmm, okay. And then there's regression. 
Regression is pretty similar to classification, except that you're looking kind of more at trend lines. It's actually, in a lot of ways, it's halfway between these two things because you're plotting things over time to get correlated events. And then it's trying to basically draw a function through them. Okay. Like if things are going in a sine curve, it's going to figure out a function that, are, that approximates that sine curve. And then you put a tolerance on that when you're looking for anomalies of how far away from the function a predicted result is. And then you can start alerting on what doesn't fit the curve that you had predicted from the previous data. Okay. These are all ways of being able to find things that look weird, but aren't like explicit numerical thresholds. Yeah. They're based on prior behavior. And that's really the important part is because I know in my world, especially with the cloud stuff, there's just so much data. I can't just look at the data and say, no, nah, more than 300 is a problem. <laughs> yeah. I just can't do it. I need the computer to do it for me, which is why I started getting into this. Hmm, okay. Because in the cloud, one of the biggest exploits, one of the biggest ways to monetize, at least for a while, although that's going to be less nowadays with crypto crashing, mm-hmm. was basically using your account because you left your credentials lying around to spin up a bunch of crypto miners for them. <laughs> and some of those things, maybe the account that you're doing is supposed to make virtual machines, but like one every six hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something like that. Like it's supposed to like tear down and bring up a, a one every six hours. And then it does 50 of them. Well, that's going to make a huge spike in your graph. And you want it to tell you that without you having to explicitly say, this is the threshold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But the great thing, like honestly, the amazing thing to me coming back from SIM days when you couldn't put firewall logs in your SIM because it was just too much, you functionally couldn't do it mm-hmm. to now where we can basically build something that accommodates everything if your wallet's big enough. Right, yeah. Is that we can do these things. Not not only can we handle the data, but I can do this magic. And it's built Mm -hmm. into the system. And I don't have to know anything about, I don't have to know very much about programming in itself. I don't need to know the Python because, well, I I know Sanskrit or Perl. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on Python. I've done some stuff, but man, do I not feel anywhere as confident in it. And it- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I run home to mama way too often. It's like, I need to do something. I could do it in Python and then I'll bang my head and went, you know what? I got to get this done. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> oh, well, screw it. I'm just going to do it on here now. I'm trying not to be stuck too far in the past, but man, Pearl's pretty cool sometimes. Uh, <laughs> it, all right. So for real, Pearl is very, very fast at text processing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's the hammer I need. In fact, a lot of times when you're talking about the volumes that we're talking about, it's the hammer I need. So yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's hard to just lay that hammer, uh, put that hammer up above the mantle and say, that was the hammer I used to get where I'm at. And now I use this other hammer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the other hammer is the right tool for a lot of jobs, but it's not the right tool for every job. I feel that, yeah. So uh, did you learn anything or was I just uh, talking because I needed to vent? <laughs> <laughs> no, like I, like I said uh, earlier on, I'm going to have to revisit my architecture because, yeah, thinking about that, I just kicked my brain into ADHD overdrive. Hyperfocus is a superpower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.